Our reading today comes from Mark 9, 30 through 10, 16. From there, Jesus and his followers went through Galilee, but he didn't want anyone to know it. This was because he was teaching his disciples. The human one will be delivered into human hands. They will kill him. Three days after he is killed, he will rise up. But they didn't understand this kind of talk, and they were afraid to ask him. They entered Capernaum. When they had come into a house, he asked them, What were you arguing about during the journey? They didn't respond, since on the way they had been debating with each other about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be the least of and the servant of all. Jesus reached for a little child, placed him among the twelve, and embraced him. Then he said, Whoever welcomes one of these children at my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me isn't actually welcoming me, but rather the one who sent me. John said to Jesus, Teacher, when we saw someone throwing out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Jesus replied, Don't stop him. No one who does powerful acts in my name can quickly turn around and curse me. Whoever isn't against us is for us. I assure you that whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will certainly be rewarded. As for whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to trip and fall into sin, it would be better for them to have a huge stone hung around their necks and be thrown into the lake. If your hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off. It's better for you to enter a life of crippled than to go away with two hands in the fire of hell, which can't be put out. If your foot causes you to sin, chop it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to be thrown into hell with two feet. If your eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter God's kingdom with one eye than to be thrown into hell with two. That's a place where worms don't die and the fire never goes out. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? Maintain salt among yourselves and keep peace with one another. Jesus left that place and went beyond the Jordan and into the region of Judea. Crowds gathered around him again, and as usual, he taught them. Some Pharisees came, and trying to test him, they asked, Does the law allow a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a divorce certificate and to divorce his wife. Jesus said to them, He wrote this commandment for you because of your unyielding hearts. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Because of this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Inside the house, the disciples asked him about this again. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a wife divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them. But the disciples scolded him. When Jesus saw this, he grew angry and said to them, Allow the little children to come to me. Don't forbid them, because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Then he hugged the children and blessed them. The word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. 
Well, hi everyone uh, at NCKC. My name is Michael Wiltshire. I am a pastor and a seventh grade special education teacher in Los Angeles. Uh, I should say that I consider Jerry Pickett to be a friend, a mentor, really the reason why I'm ordained, and best of all, a brother in a being a 2000s emo music boy. So I just want to say thank you to Jerry for asking me to share today. Um, and with that, let's just jump right in. Uh, my conviction in this sermon, I hope, is just a really clear one. It's that as a church, if we do not have a biblically informed, historically aware, theologically rich way of seeing the world's children, if we don't see children like Jesus saw them, then we will misunderstand and we will misinform the kingdom of God. So that's a lot to unpack. And and before we get to uh, its talk of children, we should notice that at a glance, our Mark passage that I just read gives us really a lot in the way of the unsettling. There's the self-eye gouging. There's boulders being tied to necks and tossed seaward. There's talk of undying worms and unquenchable fires. There's demons and there's adultery. As a whole, we might notice in this passage that Jesus, through Mark, is painting a picture of the kingdom of God, often through a contrast with the realities of this world. And amongst all of this, we have these mature, godly disciples of Christ arguing with one another, and then scolding and literally restraining little children from getting hugs from Jesus. And for me, my friends, this is perhaps the most perplexing, unexpected scene in that whole text. I mean, in a world before social distancing, why would the disciples of Jesus stop kids from hugging Jesus? And this is essentially the question behind today's sermon. But before we get into Jesus' response to the disciples, it's worth asking if the disciples are being total jerks or if they're simply doing normal things given their time and place in the world. And so I did some digging into how first century Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures viewed children. And just a spoil alert, it kind of makes the disciples look like those smiley adults on Sesame Street. So let me just share a few quick but kind of upsetting insights that should help us understand the historical backdrop to this scene in Mark's gospel where Jesus says, let the children come to me. See, in Greco-Roman culture, which is, if you remember, the dominant culture in which most of the New Testament is written, it's this Greek and Roman hybrid, right? So in this culture, children were considered truly the spitting image of their parents. Because they reflected the parent's character to the larger society, a child's behavior could literally positively or negatively change the family's whole social standing. Households were seen as microcosms of Roman society. And so children represented their parents, who represented their town, who represented Rome. It's like a house of cards. The kids misbehave and the Colosseum, so to speak, collapses. The problem is that while children held such enormous pressure, they were not set up for success. 
Children, by and large, were viewed socially at best as unfinished adults. And at worst, they were incomplete humans. Greek and Roman folks assumed that kids lacked the self-control and intelligence to just be good people. Even the Jewish children, who were often treated much better than their Greco-Roman counterparts, but even these children were not expected to be able to follow the Torah until they were age seven. And look, let me just add that as a special ed middle school teacher, I can kind of sympathize to where our first century parents are coming from in terms of their kids lacking self-control and just misbehaving. However, it soon becomes clear that when a society holds a low view of their children, things go horribly wrong. You see, in the social hierarchy of the Greeks and Romans, children, as we've seen, are at the very, very bottom of society. They're below slaves, even. And this is because children were seen as non-contributors. They received and received, but offered nothing in the way of production. And because they were seen as society's lowest, children in the Greco-Roman antiquity lacked basic human rights. They had no legal or social protections, none. And so they faced the extreme likelihood of violence, abuse, and harsh exposure to the elements. Infancy for Roman, Greco-Roman kids was particularly dangerous. The historians that I read suggested that only 50% of children made it into adulthood. And making matters worse, the child's father, or if unmarried, the mother, had the legal right to choose to raise a child or to abandon it in a public space like a temple, a garbage dump, or a doorway. And if these children were picked up in time, it was often by those looking for free child slave labor. Yeah, all of this is terrible. And to be clear, it wasn't that all Greco-Roman parents didn't love or find joy in their children. That's not what I'm saying here. I I just watched Russell Crowe and Gladiator, and that dude loves his kid. And those people are out there. But because the Greco-Roman society as a whole structurally devalued kids, these children were perpetually at risk. Kids just weren't understood or valued, and the consequences were horrific. That's the historical backdrop to this mark passage. And so our disciples, when we see them scolding and pushing back those snot-nosed adolescents from their rabbi, well, the cultural shoe fits, doesn't it? The disciples are just living and breathing the kingdom of Rome. And here's the hard truth that we have to face. That Greco-Roman kingdom is eerily reminiscent of where we find ourselves today. Thankfully, our children do have legal rights, and much more than 50% of at least American kids reach adulthood. But still, our cultural assumptions about children, at their worst, do feel born of our Roman ancestors. I asked a few of my friends with children if they ever felt like society devalued or dehumanized their kids. I asked them if their kids, like the children of Jesus' day, were ever treated as 
unproductive or unfinished or identified as simply a, a status symbol that represents their family. And here's how those parents replied. One parent said, people see my children as the future, as if they have something to contribute later, but have not fully achieved their humanity or value yet. That same parent said, I think that in general, adults just don't understand that my children have deep feelings and emotions, just like adults do. Another parent said, I think American culture in particular devalues children. We think of children in the abstract as a commodity rather than human beings who feel and think and experience trauma. Another said, we protect pregnancy in the name of being pro-life, but then we act as if the child's life is meaningless thereafter. And finally, people spend a lot of time teaching kids the ways adults process things, but not enough time learning what works for their kids. Adults also tend to underestimate what our children can comprehend. I mean, can you hear those Greco-Roman assumptions about kids and the stories and reflections of today's parents 2,000 years later? As a society, these issues become even more apparent when we stand back. At our nation's border, immigration control is so valued that children are renamed, separated, caged, and removed from families. During COVID-19, many children have just been underfed and overstressed. In the United States alone, before COVID-19, the yearly reported cases of child abuse have reached 2.9 million annually. So when it comes to our society and its kids, as a whole, we are not embodying the kingdom of God. We are settling for the kingdom of Rome. And this is the claim of the kingdoms of Rome. Children may be cute and we may love them and we may have good feelings toward them, but we aren't going to organize life in such a way that recognizes their value. That's the claim of Rome. But that, my friends, is not the claim of Jesus. It's not the claim of the gospel. And it's not how children function in the kingdom of God. It is precisely this Roman sort of kingdom that Jesus is up against when the disciples step in between God and those kids. But Jesus is more powerful than any system of oppression. Jesus isn't having it. He's the king of another kingdom, an anti-Rome. And so he flips the situation on its head. Mark says in verses 14 through 16, Of chapter 10, Jesus says, Allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them, because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. And then he hugged the children and he blessed them. You see, unlike the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of God is for the kids. Jesus has been dropping these not-so-subtle hints all along. I mean, just in our reading today, he insists that whoever welcomes a child welcomes God. 
He warns that whoever trips little ones into sin are at risk of hell. He affirms the importance of marriage and family, and he welcomes children, revealing that not only does the kingdom of God belong to them, but that God's, the entry to God's kingdom is a kid-shaped door. God's kingdom is, or if God's kingdom is a sphere of existence in which we're all called to live, then the conflict between Jesus and the disciples is over a reversal of values and expectations on the kind of life Jesus is offering. In other words, as the explosion of God's power in this world continues to take shape, Jesus is not looking for the self-sufficient, the powerful, the contributors, those who can provide and be productive. Jesus is building a kingdom of and for the receivers, those who accept love and provision without a compulsion of production. The powerless, those who rely unexpectedly, freely on the Father for life. His kingdom is for the unsure, those who admit that their faith is made of mystery. It's for the vulnerable, those whose helplessness is a fertile ground for grace. This kingdom is for the children, those who belong to God before they were even knitted together in their mother's womb. So again, my heart in this sermon is not to suggest that that Jesus is stating that adults are denied the kingdom of God, right? I think it's much more accurate to see Jesus as using children as exemplary models for the kingdom of God, thereby affirming their value in a way that directly challenges the status quo. For Jesus... The faith of a child isn't this blind, unquestioning submission. Rather, it's a receptive, humble, playful receiving of the kingdom. What Jesus expects from his disciples and from us is not a faith dependent on miracles or power or all the answers. It's a faith which runs clumsily to Jesus for a hug. Now, all of this doesn't fix Rome's attitudes toward children, and it doesn't fix America's practices, systems regarding our children. But it does change our imagination of the value behind all of those snot-nosed kids we see running around in our homes, in our schools, and in our communities. You see, our task today is simple. I want us all as part of Christ's church to take seriously the radically counter-cultural claims of Christ. The kingdom of God is for the kids. How we treat children is how we treat God. The helpless, always receiving non-productive qualities of children is the expected posture of those in God's kingdom. It's probably even the key to admittance. And I want us to follow the example of our kids, to live like them, to have faith, not like the disciples and not like Rome, but of these no-name kids. I recently re-watched the, the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? 
If you haven't seen it, oh my gosh, go watch it. See, it follows the life of, of Fred Rogers and his decision to become an ordained minister, not to a church, but to his show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. In the doc, Fred has this interview where he talks about why he committed his life to reaching kids through television. And his response should sound familiar. He said, in this country, a child is appreciated for what he will be. He will be a great consumer someday. The quicker we can get them to go out and buy, the better. See, if this was the message of society through the TV, Fred wanted to offer a counter message. And his show said this message every day. It said, as Fred put it, you are special. And what ultimately that means is that you don't have to do anything sensational to be loved. Fred would often sing this theology on his show. Maybe you remember it. I like you as you are, exactly and precisely. I think you turned out nicely, and I like you as you are. That is the kingdom of Jesus. Taking another kingdom that sees children as just potential consumers and offering another way of existence, a kingdom in which children are loved and liked precisely because they belong to God. Jesus, in our Mark text, Mr. Rogers, and won't you be my neighbor, they are prophets for us, calling us to see the world differently. But they are also pastors for us, reminding us to be thankful for those adults in our lives who saw our childhood self the way that Jesus saw those kids. I want to end the sermon now the same way that Won't You Be My Neighbor ends, by asking for one minute of silence, 60 seconds to recall with gratitude those adults who refused the kingdom of Rome and instead showed you the kingdom of Jesus. Those adults who liked and who loved us exactly, precisely the way we are. As a child, think back now. Who hugged you? Who blessed you? Who was Jesus to you? And for 60 seconds, I just want you to soak in those memories.
as we come back now with those people in our hearts, I want us to hold that feeling of gratitude. I thought of my grandfather who passed away just about a month ago. Whoever you thought of, just hold them with you. And out of gratitude for these people, let us go and do likewise. As Jesus says, whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me isn't actually welcoming me, but rather the one who sent me. Let's go live that out. Let's go challenge the systems of Rome, the systems of America, with the kingdom of God through the message to our kids that we like them and we love them precisely the way they are. Because precisely the way they are is how we see the kingdom of God. Lord, would you give us strength? Would you give us eyes to see you in the faces of the little ones in our lives? Would you help us to learn from them and to value them and to change the way the world works for them? Because when we do, we'll have one foot further into the kingdom that you're bringing into this world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.